Thank you guys for being here tonight as we worship the Lord together. Um, we, um, we live in a world where we see lots of examples of both good and bad contracts. I think sometimes when we think contracts, some of us, especially maybe some of the men, not to be chauvinistic in the world, automatically think sports contracts. You know, there's there's one sports contract that many sports writers seem to believe is one of the worst ever written. It was A-Rod's 10-year, $275 million contract he signed with the Yankees in 07. Uh, they say a lot of reasons for that. Length of time of the contract, what they believed he truly was worth, the lack of competition for him from other teams. A lot of people say, but I was reading this other CNN sports writer, Steve uh, Politi, Uh, He writes that, uh, and these are some of the ones I'd have forgotten, like Michael Vick got $135 million over 10 years from the Atlanta Falcons, and for that money, they got a quarterback who completed 54% of his passes and went to prison for animal cruelty. There you go. Then you've got uh, Jerome James signed with the Knicks for $30 million, then averaged a grand total of three points a game. That's good. And this one right here for the Mets, I'd forgotten about this one, Bobby Bonilla, um, money-strapped baseball team. What do they do? They pay their outfielders so much money in their contract that they are still paying Bobby Bonilla and will continue to be paying him until he's 72 years old to finish out the $1.2 million they owe him. That'll be sometime in 2035. So they're currently paying him more than 18 other people on their roster right now. How about that? That's a good contract. Um, you, know, you think about contracts and you think, well, what about maybe wedding, weddings, right? You think, ah, oh, there's, there's some interesting contractual things going on in those uh, these days. If you pick up a, a People magazine or some other type of celebrity type or just go look at E or whatever network and you see some of the celebrity prenups that are out there. Uh, I, I, I took the names off of these to protect the, the, uh, the, guilt, the, the, the ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> One of them that I researched said, if you cheat, you'll owe me $100,000. Another in the prenup said, while we are married, I can have as many pets as I want. (laughs) That one's funny. Um, If this marriage stays together for at least 10 years, I'll be paid a bonus of $250,000. That was one. How about that one? Um, If you ever cheat on me, I'll be able to cash in all of your frequent flyer miles. It's a little unusual. And this one right here, maybe the most unusual of all, if you ever weigh more than 120 pounds, you'll have to pay me $120,000. That was in the, pre, the prenup. That's a contract right there. Wow. So whether it's the sports world or the poorly written contracts and business deals sometimes or celebrity world of crazy prenups, we see the word contract and we've got one thing in our mind and then we see God start to speak about oaths and covenants and things like that, and we immediately go to contract. And we think, okay, well, I think I understand what God's talking about here. Now, but you see, in, for instance, in Hosea, see, we're not even to Matthew yet, so that, that may be the mark of a long sermon. Maybe not. We'll see. In Hosea, we find the Israelites being described as those who are not taking oaths and covenants seriously, and as a result, there are bad things happening. All right. Uh, they speak mere words, taking false oaths while they're making their covenants. So lawsuits break out like poisonous weeds in the furrows of a field. Well, in our focal passage for tonight, for this weekend, we see that Jesus is concerned that his followers aren't fully grasping the whole oath covenant thing as well. Even in this greatest of speeches, the Sermon on the Mount, 
In Matthew 5.33, we're going to end, uh, we're going to speak to the end of the passage first and then work back to the be- work from the beginning forward. Uh, but in verse 33, the last verse of what we're covering today, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Now, the, the, the whole idea of, of keeping oaths for the Pharisees almost kind of became a joke. And the reason why was because, well, first of all, they weren't speaking God's name verbally out loud. So whenever they would make an oath, instead of using God's name out loud in the oath, they would substitute it for by earth or by heaven or by Jerusalem. And so what would happen is they were, they were master manipulators at getting out of the oaths that they were so quick to often make because they would say, but we didn't say, we didn't say his name in the oath. His name wasn't a part of it, and so it's, it's all good. I mean, they would have been the master's of developing prenups, right? Big time. Because they could just kind of manipulate and try to work it and make it happen. And, and it just kind of trying to work to their advantage. And here's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, hold on. you got to keep your oath. God was a part of that, even if you didn't say his name. And uh, you can't take, go out the back door that way. And so he said, you got to take it seriously. But why is Jesus saying it here in this moment? It's, it's sandwiched here in this Sermon on the Mount, but it's also concluding some remarks that he was making about marriage. Because it wasn't just the Pharisees that were having problems with the whole oath covenant thing. It was really all of the Israelites and in society in general and specifically even as it related to marriage. They were missing the point, oftentimes just like we do, because we look at marriage and think contract, and God looks at marriage and thinks covenant. Matter of fact, look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, and I hope you don't put your brain completely in like neutral right now and think, oh, I've heard all of this in a wedding recently, because I think it's going to be a fresh look at something. I really believe that. In Malachi 2, 14, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witnesses between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife. How? How does he see that union? By contract? No, he says by covenant. Critically important for us to understand as we dive into this passage in a minute, because when our view of marriage is raised to the level that God sees it, then all of a sudden, Matthew 5 begins to make more sense. But if we stay at the contractual level, then when we look at Matthew 5, it's really easy for us to get into the weeds. And Jesus' words begin to look really confusing. So let's first define covenant covenant, the word itself, a contract. Oh, great. So we're going to define it by the thing that we say it's not. All right, well, hold on for a minute. Or agreement between two parties. So here's this contractual thing. But in this context, God is in the mix. And so things begin to change. And we begin to see how in just a second. The the Old Testament word for covenant is translated from the Hebrew berith. And it's derived from this root that has to do with the word to cut. 
And so what you find in the Old Testament are passages and places where literally there was this ancient custom of cutting and dividing the animals in half and putting them on two separate altars. And then the contractual parties would walk through the cut animal. Half of Bessie's on one side, half of Bessie's on the other, and they're both walking through. And the symbolism is really poignant because what the symbolism is saying is, hey, may it be to us, may what happened to us, what happened to this animal happen to us if we break this deal. Well then, isn't it interesting that in Genesis chapter 15, we find this imagery again, and it's at the point that God himself, as he's making the, co- the covenant to Abraham, has the animals slaughtered. And while Abraham is asleep, God himself walks through. But not two parties, just one, because it's the unilateral God saying, this is what I decree and it will be happen and, and, and you, can, you can count on it. I place everything. I place my godness, all of who I am, on this as I walk through here with this covenant to you, Abraham. We find covenants throughout the Bible, man to man, Jonathan and David, country to country, tribe to tribe, nation to nation, God being called upon to witness covenants. And if we go back to the Old Testament prophet's description of idolatry, and especially of Baal worship, what we begin to see is that it really is seen as adultery. You begin to get this idea that the covenant is pretty serious, that if you break the covenant, there is this adulterous component that comes in because you have now separated what was meant to be one. It has now become contaminated and if we begin to look at marriage in the light of that covenant, what then does Matthew 5 look like? The covenant relationship between God and Israel certainly paints quite a picture, a covenant of mutual love and fidelity and valuing of each other. So is it possible that we could maybe grasp a little bit more of what God is trying to get at here? If we take a 30,000-foot view of covenant from God. Let's look at a couple more passages before we look at Matthew. Uh, the, the Adamic covenant. Matthew 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This was a covenant of provision. It was a covenant of provision that he was making. And yet, here's what he's saying. You eat the the fruit and you die. It almost sounds more like a conditional threat, right? But there's great security that's found here. He's saying, listen, you obey me in this one thing. You get total security. All your needs are met. You have fellowship with me forever. You have a stable, loving, rich relationship with God forever. And what happens? We know the story. What does mankind do? Mankind focuses on what? The no instead of the yes. That's a key point. Because we often do that in humanity. Still, thousands and thousands of years later, we so easily focus on the no as opposed to the yes. 
in this area of marriage, of relationships, of sex, what does our culture do? We look at God and we look at this document here that is his love letter to us. And we go, well, God surely comes off awfully prudish in here. I mean, doesn't he realize realize what kind of world we live in? How dare he show us only one example of marriage and that example be between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. How dare he regulate sexual activity to only within the bonds of marriage? How dare he say marriage is to be an unbroken union? How dare he? And we, we look at that and that becomes our focus and we become just like Adam and Eve. Because we go to the no. Not to the yes. The yes of a whole garden to play in. The yes of protection and provision. The yes of peace. The yes of true sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. The yes of an unpolluted mind. The yes of a marriage that's free of sexually transmitted diseases. The yes of no comparisons and no contrast. The yes of portraying to the world a picture of God's love and his relationship to us and to the church. You see, I think before we ever get into this subject matter very deep, we have to ask ourselves the question, both personally and really culturally, are we more focused on God's no or God's yes? That has to do with covenant, you see, and our response to it. Let's keep going. This covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will, I, will all life be cut off the waters of a a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Go backwards a little bit. Genesis 8, 22. As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So now we get this covenant with Noah and every living creature and with us. And it's a covenant of preservation. And in this part of the story, all of life virtually becomes extinct, right? But in the end, Noah and his family are delivered. And a rainbow shows up and God says, listen, um, as long as the world lasts, what you just experienced isn't going to happen again. And, and, and what's really key here is before that rainbow shows up, in verse, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 7 of Genesis 9, God commands them to do something. You know what he commands them to do? He commands them to go be fruitful and multiply. He says to be fruitful and multiply. And as, as, as you look at that command of God saying, listen, I want you to keep humanity going. It's, it must have been going through, a, through Noah's mind. How does all this take place? I've got a lot of fears going on here. Look what, just, look what I just went through. There's an awful lot of worry. There's an awful lot of confusion going on. I've been on this boat with all these animals. I mean, you've seen the movie. You know. There's a lot of stuff going on. Trees coming to life. I don't know. Crazy stuff. And in this moment, what God says in the midst of all that is, here's the command, but hey, by the way, I'm giving you this covenant because I want you to know and remember that I'm good for it. I'm good for it, that you will be preserved. He must have had an awful lot of questions. And I I think as we get into relationships, you know, difficulties happen, life happens. Sickness occurs. 
We're faced with job loss and health concerns and issues with our families and with our children. But in a covenantal relationship, in a covenantal marriage, we are reminded that we have a God who says, I'm in this with you. You can trust me. There's one more. This covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So finally we come to this covenant with Abraham. It's a covenant of blessing, right? Abraham had settled in Haran and the moon god there was being worshipped. And in this 19th century B.C. city, it was flourishing like no other, right? But it was pagan. It was not a good place to be. And God was calling, calling Abram out of a place of comfort for him. God says, I want you to get on your camel and ride and walk away from this place. This is not where you're supposed to be. I didn't create you for this. I want you to follow me into this covenantal relationship. And you're going to be leaving your comfort zone, but I'm taking you into a life beyond what you could begin to ever dream. In relationships, we can so easily settle. We can live out life with, within the world's standards and think that we are better than most. And so divorce is seen quickly as viable, even within the church. And compromise looks understandable. And pornography is a release. And almost anything is acceptable. But if we have a covenantal understanding of marriage, then we choose not to settle because we see that God is in the mix. And we choose not to settle because we understand that he's leading us to a blessing that's very difficult for us to be able to even comprehend or understand. So in these three Old Testament examples of covenant, we find God showing us that he's going to provide, that he's going to preserve, that he's going to bless. And then he takes that thought of covenant and covers the word of God with it. And then we enter into this discussion about marriage and he's using that word covenant. And we understand that marriage was God's idea. He designed it. And as the designer, he knows exactly what marriages need in order for them to thrive. And that his ultimate goal is for us to live that relationship out as an example of covenant. So finally, we get to this portion of Sermon on the Mount. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A little bit of context here, what the Pharisees believed their teaching was that really only you should be concerned once again with the outward act. They said the only way that you could really commit adultery was through the act of sexual union. They correctly quoted the commandment, but they missed the point. 
that adultery begins in the heart. That the lustful desire in the heart is as wrong as the act because it impacts our relationship with God. As Jesus quotes the seventh commandment here, he gives us a clear picture of the reality of the heart. He said, but, but, but Randy, is, is he really equating lust here with, with adultery? Uh, yeah, he is. In the same way that if you were with us last week, he was equating, equating anger, or equating, if you want to say it that way, anger with murder. Because it becomes a heart issue. It's from the heart perspective, and it does take us to the idea of covenant. So to desire sexually or otherwise someone other than one's covenantal spouse violates the mutual valuing that's within that covenant. And lust and variety of other pornographic options that are available to our, our uh, lives, our homes, ourselves, our culture today, undermine it and kill it. The reality is that pornography is killing marriages in our culture because it's being used by the enemy to divide the heart. It's idolatry in the shape of adultery, and it's set in and corrupted the covenantal relationship. And I, I don't know how to say it any more clearly, but I, I really do believe, men, that if you don't have filters and accountability software on your phones and computers and you're playing Russian roulette with your relationships. We use covenant eyes at our house, but there's that. There's X3 watch. There's some, some software options are free. Some cost a little bit, but regardless, whatever the effort or cost you put into protection, it's nothing compared to the destruction and damage that pornography is causing in marriages every day. And if I sound a bit alarmist, I've got a few stats. In 2012, 68% of of divorces involved one party meeting a new lover over the internet. 84% of those involved in a romantic relationship said their partner did not know about the porn on their cell phone. 46% of regular porn users are married. 90% of boys, by the time they are 18 years of age, have viewed porn online, and 35% of them say they've viewed it so many times it's too many to count. Those who have ha- ha- ever, ever committed adultery are those those who had ever committed adultery are 218 times more likely to look at porn, and those who had ever engaged in paid sex are 270 times more likely to look at porn. Now all that's messed up, right? Now here's a statistic that's actually a bad stat, and I'm going to give it to you anyway and say that there's new research out that's making this a whole lot worse. It's, it appears as if it's much worse. But an old stat, 2006, reported that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women are addicted to pornography. And 60% of the women who answered the survey admitted to having significant struggles with lust, while 40% admitted to being involved in sexual sin in the past year. So what does all that do? What does all that do to the covenantal relationship? According to the Journal of Adolescent Health, prolonged exposure to pornography leads to an exaggerated perception of sexual activity in society, diminished trust between intimate couples, the abandonment of the hope of sexual monogamy. Well, you know, it's just not possible. What God speaks about, 
what I read about, what I was brought up to believing is impossible. Belief that promiscuity is the natural state. Belief that abstinence and sexual inactivity are unhealthy. A cynicism about love between sexual partners. Belief that marriage is sexually confining. And a lack of attraction to family and child raising. So we should take it seriously. We should look at software and a lot of other options. Anything that we can get our hands on to make sure that our homes make sure that our phones, to make sure that our kids are safe and our relationships are safe. Jesus makes it quite clear that the issue is really a heart issue, though. He raises the possibility that one's right eye or hand might cause one to sin and that it would be better to remove that offending body part because it is better to lose one part of our body than for a whole body to be thrown into hell. Does that drive a point home about how serious this is? Is Jesus being literal at this point? Well, let me ask you a different way. Can a blind man lust? Yeah. Does a man have to have all of his appendages to be able to lust? Of course not. The point is made, and it's a serious matter, that it begins in the heart, and Jesus continues. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And at this point, you know, I'm looking at, at Ron and we're looking at this passage and we're talking about this, you know, and we're like, we're doing the Sermon on the Mount. We know what's in there. It's going to be some controversial stuff. You know, we could skip over some stuff and just kind of get to all the high points. Especially maybe verse uh, 31 and 32. So we chose not to do that and just kind of push through. Because it all matters. And it all points a really important picture. And Deuteronomy 24.1 is what the quotation is here. And he's basically quoting this statement that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce that certificate of divorce back in the Old Testament was this legal uh, document where a husband gave up his rights to his wife that he was divorcing. And in Jewish society, this would allow the woman the possibility of remarriage. And in Jewish culture, that was structured in such a way that every woman was legally dependent upon a man, right? And so uh, for, for women whose fathers or brothers or uh, uh, would, would not or could not support them. Uh, the only option ended up being remarriage or uh, some sort of illicit uh, relationship of some kind. Excuse me. So the passage begins, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds out something indecent about her. And the rabbis were in a debate during the day, right? There was this one group that was the Hillel group. And they were saying, well, you know, even if uh, she like burns your food and doesn't fix it the way you like. Or if there's another prettier woman down the block, you know, you've got reason to divorce. But there was the Shammai group who were saying, no, 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 listen. It's only for really serious things like, I mean, adultery. That's the only way that that should happen. And Jesus steps into this moment, and what I'm going to give you right now is, is probably one of the most unpopular interpretations, and it's, and it's one of the most extreme, honestly, but I'm going to give it to you because I, I, think it, I think it takes us to a good place. 
So get mad at me at first, but then keep listening, okay? In, in this passage, Jesus uses a particular word for divorce, pornea. And he doesn't use the word moikia. Why not? There are many scholars that believe the reason why this occurred is because he was writing to a Jewish audience and you need to understand the Jewish customs of the day. The Jewish engagement custom was that if you go all the way back to where? Hey, go back to Matthew chapter 1, right? Joseph and Mary. What was happening? There were these engaged couples who were spoken of by the Jews as what? As husband and wife. But they were going through this betrothal period that ended up in a sexual union, but they had not gotten to that point yet, but they were headed along the way. See virgin birth. And when Christ says, except for fornication here, he's speaking of a release from the bonds of betrothal, not of marriage. That if a woman was found unfaithful during that period, she would be put away. So Jesus, is he saying then that if a man puts away his wife for any other reason than fornication or unfaithfulness to the engaged partner during that period, process of getting marriage, then he is guilty of committing adultery if he marries another. If that woman puts away, uh, if, if, if that woman put away for an unjust cause is married by another, then that one is committing adultery to her. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but what I want to say to you is that there is a way to look at this passage that appears as if Jesus isn't giving any way out of marriage. Well, that's really unpopular. I mean, under this interpretation, there is no escape clause. Now, now some suggest that, you know, even whenever you look at the disciples' reaction to these additional remarks that he makes in Matthew 19, Jesus reminds them that only Moses permitted divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. And when Jesus uses the word pornea there as well, instead of moikia, the word for adultery, which it would have made sense for him to use, the disciples then responded. How did they respond? In Matthew 19, here's what they said. They said, it just might be better not to marry. That was their response. And it's interesting that if you go with that interpretation, it really does make a lot of sense from Jesus' perspective because what did Jesus so often do? When the Pharisees were in some kind of argument, you know what he did? He went above it. He didn't side with Hillel. He didn't side with Shammai. He went way up above it all and said, no, let's take the 30,000 view and look down. So is Jesus coming on the scene and saying the design for marriage is permanence? Is that what marriage is designed to be? I think it is designed to be permanent. Is he giving an escape clause of sorts? You know, I, here's, here's what's crazy. When we begin to look at this and we begin to ask, we could ask so many more questions. Well, why does Paul show up and then he talks about the non-believing spouse and then there's an escape clause there? And why isn't it just all unfurled? Why does it seem so difficult? Why can it be, why are so many scholars at odds on what is appropriate and why can you get divorced or why can you not get divorced? And what I love about this passage is that I like the interpretation that has Jesus go above it all and say, you know what? Marriage is to be permanent. That's the way that God designed it. 
So where do we sit then? I mean, we get really uncomfortable, right? 2,000 years later, we look at this and go, okay, Jesus, you got my attention. Just like he got theirs. We're still left feeling a little uncomfortable. Why? Because in this passage, in some interpretations, Jesus describes remarriage in terms of adultery. That he even goes so far as to say that marrying a divorced woman is described as an act of adultery. And some may say, but I've been remarried. Does God see my relationship as adultery then? Are you saying my marriage was dissolved for good reasons or not good reasons? Does God expect me to live in this relationship of abuse, of broken expectations, of, of whatever? Doesn't God want me to be happy? What do we do with all those questions when divorce is a reality in our culture and so is remarriage? And how do we handle it all? I think the way that we handle it is we don't shy away from God's ideal, regardless of what our culture looks like. And I also think that within the body of Christ, we're called to speak the truth in love. But I think within that love, we have God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and renewal and hope. So if you've experienced divorce and are now remarried, I don't find scriptural basis for you to now end the current relationship that you're in because of sin. But what I do find is a God who renews and restores and brings beauty from ashes. And if you're considering divorce or you know someone who is, I believe this passage points us toward doing all that we can to restore and revive what the enemy is attempting to destroy. And I think if you are married, one interesting thing to consider is that Once we accept that divorce is really just not an option, I think it changes how we approach marriage. Just knowing the exit door is not on the table. Why? Because then it's a reality that we begin to live in that we got to work in this, that we got to work on this. We got to work on this because God's blueprint is all over this and it's all about covenant. And He intended for us to walk through that together. And so, as a church, we're offering the Couples Checkup Conference. It's coming up November 7th and 8th. I would encourage you to go online and take a look at it. It's for people who are considering getting married or who have been married for a long time. People who are working through issues. People who feel like things are going really well. Really well. It's, a, it's an opportunity for you to go through the checkup experience. See how you're doing. Based on these verses tonight, where do you see you? Do you need to maybe elevate your view of marriage to God's? To move it from the contractual thought to the covenantal thought. Maybe it has to do with relationship that you're walking in. Maybe it has to do with, I don't know, something very personal that you're dealing with. Maybe there's some forgiveness that needs to happen. Maybe there's some help and reconciliation. Maybe you just need to ask God for some clarity. I could tell you this, Romans 8 is beautiful in this moment because what does Paul teach us? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you didn't hear that today. 
I hope what you heard is that God takes marriage and elevates it so very high and says, this is a picture of my relationship to the church. This is my picture of a covenant to a people that I love, that I want to understand the beauty of who I am. He wants us to find freedom. Freedom from fear and guilt and worry and anxiety. And you know what I think it takes us back to? I think it takes us back to the first week. Because I really believe that when we look at what we looked at tonight, it takes us back to whether or not we can see God. Because you see, that covenant is such a pure thing that when we're living in it, we have purity of heart. And that means we can see God and we can see his plans for our marriage and we can see our spouse for who they really are. We can see it all. Why? Because we have pure heart. I see this attached like a bungee cord to that particular verse. Will you close your eyes with me for a moment? What do you need tonight? As we think about covenant, as we think about what that means for our relationships, does it come down to just what we're focusing on? Are you focusing on all the no's? Or are you focusing on the beautiful yes and all the blessing that comes with living God's way? Do we trust him, i.e. see Noah, that regardless of the relational issues that you're facing right now, the worries, the fear, the confusion, that within that covenant, we can have security because he's there and he's going to provide and he's going to give you everything you need for what you're facing in that moment. And you say, but Randy, my heart is bleeding What I'm involved in right now is so filled with pain. God wants to meet you in that pain. Maybe it's thinking about Abraham and asking the question, have we settled? Have we believed the lie that what we're living is as good as it's going to get? That's all all we got. That the relationships that we have can't be any better that I can't strive for something more, that we can't teach our kids and train them up to have eyes that seek after not just a Christian that they would share their life with, but one who is a godly seeker and follower of the cross. You say, you know, I'm not going to settle. When it comes to areas of sexuality, when it comes to areas of purity, when it comes to issues in our home, when it comes to things that need to be protected, when it comes to the relationships in my life and the protection that needs to be there for my family and for my spouse, when it comes to the things that my eyes see, when it comes to the things that my hands touch, when it comes to the places that I go, I will not settle. I will not be like this world. I will not live and laugh at 
at the things the world laughs at. No, God, I will not settle because you have placed covenant before me, not contract. And it is a picture of your heart. And I'm going to run after you in that. Because the blessings are worth it.